You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. And that's what I did, and then it slowly and gradually grew. Up until like 2016, I only had one employee, and then in the, the years after that, 2017, 2018, and then throughout the pandemic, we've grown to a team of nine now. And especially during the pandemic, the label grew exponentially because um, people were sitting at home, um, not being able to go to gigs or festivals, not even being able to spend their money on drinks and going to bars. And they still loved music, and so they they wanted to buy vinyl records. And uh, we in increased our production by like 800% through the pandemic. It's crazy, crazy. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hops heads? I'm Matt, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, brought to you by Sound Talent Media and Evergreen Podcasts, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians, talk all about their lives and music while sharing a craft beer. I hope you've been having a killer 2023 so far. I most certainly have been. This Vox and Hops episode is presented by Heavy Montreal. Heavy Montreal are Montreal's premier metal promoter, and I am very, very stoked to have them behind the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast. Now, before we jump into today's episode, I would just like to ask you to follow the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast on the podcast platform of your choice. But more than that, I would love for you to tell a friend about the podcast. If there's someone in your life that just loves post-metal, well, you should let them know that the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast exists. You can tell them that there are over three 380 episodes where I hang out with killer metal musicians and we talk all about their life and music while sharing craft beer. If you would encourage one of your post-metal loving friends to become a brand new Vox and Hops head, that would be something that I would truly appreciate. Now today on the podcast, I'm very stoked to be with Robin Stapps of The Ocean and Pelagic Records. Get ready everyone, this is Vox and Hops episode number 386. I warn you, what you are about to hear is very disturbing indeed. Hey, what's up, everyone? Today I'm with Robin Stapps of the Ocean Collective, head of Pelagic Records. Robin, how you doing? Very well, very well. Arrived in Canada yesterday, and uh, it feels like we're finally arrived on this tour after some initial trouble, so we're happy to be here. We are very happy to have you here. I'm very happy to be face-to-face -face with you. Uh, let's just uh, dig into the thick of it. Um, how did you cope with the glorious years, plural, of 2020, 2021, half of 2022, uh, hopefully not the rest of 2022 because it's just about over. By the time this comes out, it will be over, and hopefully none of 2023. Well, we've coped very well with 2022 so far. It's been an amazing year and a full back, fully back at it, basically, after the downtime. So that feels really good. We've uh, just been out on a six-week headline tour before this one in really? Europe. With amazing. Yes, with my boys, LLNN. Whom you yes. know very well, yes. I believe. You sang on their last record. Yes, I did. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we took those crazy Danes out for six weeks and uh, it's been a very fun run. And uh, yeah, now we're here um, for a tour with Catatonia and Stella Darling. And like I said, it feels great to be able to do this again, finally, because uh, yeah, when, when COVID struck in 2020, for the first half of the year or so, I think it was actually a pretty good time because we toured so much in 2019. We started the year in India and Australia and New Zealand. Amazing. Then we did a European tour. Then we did a very lengthy tour through Russia all the way from... Um, east from west to east to Vladivostok, uh, including Kazakhstan, Armenia, and Georgia, all countries we had never been to before. Amazing. And then Japan. And then we did this uh, tour with Leprous in Europe to end the year. So we've basically been out for like six months of the year. So when COVID struck, we were all very happy to be home for a while and just <laughs> hang out with our girlfriends and our dogs, you know, and not do anything. So... Yeah, it was it was a good good creative and productive year. I wrote two new records during COVID, basically, but by the end of 2020, it was getting very boring and <laughs> sad and just yeah, like it was just too much, basically. And and then um, to cope with it and do something, we did these two live streams in 2021. So one was actually like a like a 
fully like live streamed concert from a massive empty venue in Bremen in the north of Germany, which was weird. It was like a four or five thousand capacity hall with no people in it, but we knew people were watching. We sold like 1,500 tickets for it, so it was this very odd feeling that we've never had before of playing to a very big crowd that is ours, but not seeing that crowd in the room. So it was just a... It was very weird, but it was cool in a way. And, and most importantly, it gave us a reason to get together uh, in the middle of lockdown and do something, you know, while basically most bands weren't really doing anything except these streams. Um, so it was good. We rehearsed for a month. We got together to play music, got all together into a room to play music and, and just hang out. And we had all not seen each other for a year or so. So... That was pretty cool. And then we did the second part of Fenrozoic for Roadburn, uh, the, the the digital version of Roadburn that year. So that kind of like gave us some glimmer of hope in the middle of total nothingness and uh, made us carry on through, basically. And then in the summer of 2021, we did already some open air festivals again in Europe. Some of them were very odd. Resurrection Fest, which we've played many times, always great in the northeast of Spain. Absolutely, uh, was yeah. like a seated scenario, so there were like tables and you know small groups of people sitting on tables. So that sucked, honestly. <laughs> yeah. It was just like not really enjoyable. And then we did a festival in the south of Spain uh, that was like a normal um, open air festival with no restrictions. Oddly enough, in the same country, so that was cool. And uh, yeah, and then in the fall, we did a couple of indoor festivals already. We did a Pelagic Fest in Antwerp, which was great. It was the first show in the big room at Trix, sold out. And um, that was the first time seeing a lot of people closely together in a room listening to live music. And it felt like being reborn, really, for, for us as much as for the crowd. It was a beautiful evening. The return. And then we went, went back into lockdown and uh, yeah, until... Until we we toured the U.S. in early 2022 with Leprous, so between those shows in the end of 2021 and early 2022, it was this dark period of nothing again. But we saw light at the end of the tunnel because we knew we had that U.S. tour coming up, and that was this year already, a couple months ago, and it was very um, bizarre for us because at that time in Europe, nothing was happening, and we arrived on the plane and had a show the next day, and it was a packed room. Uh, and it, it was as if the pandemic Did had never exist. happened, yeah. you know, and we were like, <laughs> fuck. And in Europe, everyone at that time was just super beat up, you know, from just not having any, any options of, of doing anything but going to small bars that were open in Berlin since early 2022. So playing a packed concert room was like really something we didn't expect, to be honest. And um, it was great for us also because... We were literally one of the first international tours going out here, I think. And um, so we started as early as we could get back at it. We we did. And um, yeah, now we're here. Amazing. And that is true. I remember when that show came through Montreal, the Leprous, the Ocean Tour. I was not yeah, ready. Yeah. Like mentally to like balance my digital interviews, my, my Zoom interviews, and then face-to-face. Yeah. -face, and then I was like, oh shit, they're coming. And then it was three weeks ago. I totally missed it. I think a lot of people felt like that. You had to remind them that Yes, you can go to gigs again, you know, like after three years of not doing that. it's. I, I had a lot of friends that uh, I used to go to gigs with that were just not coming out anymore. And I kept having to nudge them like, hey, remember? there's this thing, like, you, remember? You, you love this. It was actually cool, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you really do. And then they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, actually, yes. Vox and Hops is all about hanging with my metal friends, talking about their lives and music while sharing a craft beer. We are downtown Montreal right now at Lola Rosa, which is uh, a place that I come frequently with my wife, Jessica. Uh, it's a killer vegan restaurant, but we came here specifically because I knew that they had this beer, which is Boreal du Nord-Est. It is uh, one of the beers that changed the beer scene here in Quebec, creating the hazy IPA craze. Massive shout out to Gabriel Dulon, their brewer, uh, Vox and Hops alumni. Uh, he made this in his garage, and it worked. And he had to convince Boreal, which is a massive microbrewery, macrobrewery at this point to try to do something like this and it worked and it changed the entire scene so cheers to you for hanging out with me and enjoying a brew it's always stable it's juicy it's it's creamy yeah. mildly bitter just just totally enjoyable always always amazing let's dance into beer do you remember your very first beer it must have been something very terrible like a, an average german um shit beer like <laughs> Yever or Bex, probably something like that when i was 
12 or 13 years old. I got very heavily into drinking very quickly at that age and then um, went straight edge when I was 15. And uh, I was not drinking at all for five years, mm -hmm. which really helped me in many ways say no to things that I uh, should say no to. But then I also realized that beer is a good thing and you, you, there's no reason to categorically reject anything like that, you know? So I started drinking again. But yeah, my, my first beer was like that typical teenage bullshit. I do remember something about like drinking games oh, yeah. with vodka. Yes. <laughs> Which is another reason why you, you pushed yourselves towards the straight edgeness. Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. We were we were uh, playing these uh, drinking games called Mayan in German, um, which is basically like a drinking game with dice. Very simple and very stupid. Uh, every weekend, uh, there's always a friend who didn't have his parents in the house <laughs> where we would gather and play these drinking games and drink ridiculous amounts of, of vodka and um, and uzo, a Greek yes. aniseed-based yes. uh, liquor. So I, I, I got goosebumps just it thinking gives me about the it. shivers. I know, I, I just got them. Yeah, that, that smell of aniseed <laughs> and alcohol gives me the shivers because I puked so many times Hilarious. after that, like when I was 14. So, yeah. Brutal. Yeah, so that, that all got to a point where it was just not very sustainable already. And then uh, then hardcore happened, and that was a great yeah. thing for me. Took me out so, of that. So you had to totally into the scene of straight-edgedness. Uh, you can take a sip. Don't worry, go for it. <laughs> I, I won't keep you talking the whole time. Um, totally immersed into the scene of hardcore, straight-edgedness. Uh, at what point did it come to a point when you tried that first beer after that, that you broke away from that and found your own identity of what? your identity is going to be basically yeah um, well that was about five years later down the line when I was like 19, 20 and um, I was becoming very frustrated by the elitism in the straight edge oh, yeah. scene and just like hanging out or constantly seeing people who felt like they're better than than others just because of cho personal choices they made and for me it was always a personal choice to be straight edge at that time and I hated that and I didn't associate myself with these people anymore and it kind of um, ruined the idealism for me in a way that I uh, all of a sudden felt that um, I don't want to be aff affiliated with these types of people. So that, that was probably the trigger. But also I realized that I don't need dogmas in my life. There is a, a healthy, um, very healthy thing called sanity and Vernunft in German that allows us to judge situations and to take the right decisions uh, in every situation individually without clinging to a certain dogma or a stereotype and I just felt like I had grown out of that somehow and um, I never really enjoyed drinking like when I was 13, 14 I was a kid you know so it was just something that we did I don't know like it was I, I don't even remember much of it but it was not for the for the pleasure of enjoying like a nice IPA for example you know I just simply didn't know that and I I tried it at that time and I started really um really liking it to a point uh, where I don't have to get drunk every weekend and where I wasn't playing drinking games anymore but where I was simply uh, choosing myself when I would like to drink and what I would like to drink and how much and being straight edge learned me to be in full control of that and that's what I take out of it and what I still take out of it I don't think I've puked since my 14th birthday ever after alcohol and I can get very drunk but I know exactly the point when I need to stop in order to feel alright about it the next day you know without um, suffering the most dire consequences which I sometimes do but then then I consciously <laughs> take that step you know so it's, it's, it's a decision that you've made yeah well that's very good that, that you went through that early on in your life and because so many things can go wrong if you don't have that draw, knowing how to draw the line yeah and a lot of people discover that too late in life and they don't have the the capacity to stop at that point. Sure, yeah. It's also a matter of personality to some degree, I think. But uh, yeah, growing up in a small village, drinking was happening everywhere. They're like, I was the only kid at my school that was not drinking. Really? I was also the only kid for a long time that was into hardcore. So I was, um, I had a hard time seeing shows because my town there was nothing going on. So I always had to team up with older people from other places to get to gigs. So they hop into a car with them, basically. Exactly. And yeah. Your parents were we, cool with that. They were cool with that. They they eventually. I mean, my, my dad very early realized that this whole hardcore thing is something very positive because 
yeah. it kept me away from from bad stuff. So yeah. it, they were very supportive, but I still had to uh, make arrangements and you know find someone to drive. And we were going to shows in places that were like 45 minutes away, just because uh, I grew up in a shithole where there was really nothing happening. And um, yeah, so I, I was I was the oddball for many years, but that again was very healthy and and uh, you know just uh, strengthened my my personality and what I how I was looking at things and and values basically independently um, from what other people around me were, were doing and thinking. Absolutely, and we still are the oddballs, which is what's amazing. We are exactly about being a musician, an artist. <laughs> Someone creative. Uh, classic Vox and Hops question. Uh, I'd love to hear about the soundtrack of your youth. Uh, when you were growing up in your parents' or guardians' house, what music was playing when you were not in control of the radio? What music did your parents' or guardians listen to? My parents were not listening to much music at all, which is strange because my dad is actually a musician. He's a very uh, talented uh autodidactic piano player like really? he doesn't know how to read music but, but he, he, he hears plays, it, he and, hears it play and he it. plays it so he's, he's virtuous in that way really and um, he taught me to play the piano at a very early age very basics but I also soon lost interest in that and, uh, and discovered the guitar and that was not really something that I did through my dad because he was yeah he was just playing the piano and he was playing every day but he wasn't really playing many records if he was, it was uh, stuff like Pink Floyd, which I believe was the last band he consciously followed and loved. Okay. And then he just got to this point that a lot of my friends are getting to um, as well when, they, when they're over 30, where yeah. they just don't listen to new stuff anymore. Yeah. Because it requires an effort to find out about cool new stuff. And at one point, people just get lost in their bubble and only listen to... <laughs> what they listened to in the 90s, you know? And uh, I think with my dad, it was a similar case. So it was like old old rock stuff that he was listening to sometimes. And my mom is not a musical person at all. She's basically not listening to much music. So um, the music playing in our house was very soon defined by by me. And um, you, you would take over the record player? I, I had a CD player in the... Um, in the early 90s, the late 80s, I was born in 79, so one of the first records I picked up were like uh, Guns N' Roses, Appetite for Destruction, Use Your Illusion 1, I saw them live in 1991 with Faith No More and Soundgarden, that was a game changer, that gig, and uh, so that was like my early, earliest contact with rock, basically, but even before that, my first gig ever was Brian Adams, a fucking ah, Canadian, so I should mention yes. that here proudly. Yes, I I do have that written right there. That was <laughs> show slash Canadian. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What um, was that like? Well, why why Brian Adams? How does that work? I, that was even before Guns N' Roses. Obviously, I don't even know how, how I discovered that, but he had a big hit back then. Huge. I, I yeah. Might have been through. Didn't he do that? that song for the Robin Hood soundtrack it was probably something like that <laughs> everything I do so I ended up uh, begging my dad to take me to a gig and he took me to a gig I must have been like 7-8 years old something like that and it was a big open air gig in Hanover amazing and we were standing near the front of house and then all of a sudden for the encore he appeared on like a little stage next to the front so of house cool. and all of a sudden I was front row and I caught a drumstick and that was the beginning of the end of my life. Basically. Unbelievable. Yeah. So after that gig, you go home. <laughs> Had you already started like playing guitar at that point? No, no, that was later. Okay. Yeah. So. so that was really my first concert experience yeah. and it made me be more interested in music. Then I discovered Guns N' Roses and got super into it to the point where... I knew all the lyrics by heart, and I I was could dressing you, up like Axl Rose. Could you do the you know, dance? I got yeah. the bandana and shit. Fucking <laughs> 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 right. Yeah, that was when I was like ten, eleven, probably something like that. So when did the guitar enter your life? What, and the what, guitar what entered um, a little bit later when I was maybe like thirteen, fourteen. And, and what at was that the time, influence there? At that time, I was listening to Helmet. I was listening to the. Um, like it was the time of the the Judgment Night sampler that Hell came yes. out. This odd uh, so good. moment of in time when metal and rap like kind of touched each other so without good. it being embarrassing. Yeah, which is hard to believe for <laughs> those who are listening now and who don't know that yeah. sampler. That but was, it was well done. Yeah, a whole uh, like cool um, collaborations between hip hop artists and and uh, and metal artists. Like Slayer did a track with Ice T and yeah. Helmet with House of Pain yeah. and things like that. And that was. 
that uh, yeah that that I really loved and very much me too and, and then yeah. prong and helmet and um, and then I got into like like uh, New York hardcore through sick of it all it was my mm -hmm. first hardcore show that I saw in 1993 I think 94 so, so <laughs> from that Brian Adams yes. to the sick of it all that's a, that quite a different experience for a youth to be at it was indeed and there was something about it that I liked, but I couldn't for a long time make out what it was. It was aggressive. It was um, unlistenable for me at first, but something made me keep going back to it and listen to it again. And um, and I enjoyed the smart political lyrics that I already I, I appreciated that back then already. To um, yeah, to have like a positive message embedded into a context of heavy music. There was always something that. I found interesting and later with the whole vegan straight edge thing and bands like Earth Crisis when I was like 15, 16, you know, that was the same thing. Um, bands playing super heavy music singing about animal liberation. That was awesome. Yeah. I love that, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, Sick of It All was my entrance to that. Uh, Strive for supporting California and that was the first straight edge band I saw live and, uh, and after that gig I was sold. Just the raw energy and at the same time, like I said, combined with that positive message that really got me going and then I got uh, yeah big time into into 90s hardcore discovered more uh, abrasive stuff as well bands like Unbroken Groundwork and then Converge at that time they released Petitioning the Empty Sky I think in 94 must have been around that time I bought that record and that was again like a total life changer for me it was so much ahead of its time in many ways and um, yeah so that's that's how it all started basically it's amazing amazing how about your first time on stage we hit the Brian Adams <laughs> first your experience at a show you're on stage now you got a guitar in your hand or was it was it even like a piano recital before that no there was nothing before that I always had uh, stage fright if you really? want to call it like that when I was a kid I didn't like to perform or do karaoke or things like that was not my thing at all I, I'm definitely not a born performer I had to overcome myself to be okay with that scenario and um, now I enjoy the adrenaline like yeah. the rush of adrenaline um, there's also always a, a bit of a moment of terror that something can just go horribly wrong like more like technically wrong you know we've had these moments with the ocean plenty of embarrassing moments but uh, yeah, stuff, stuff outside of your control. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Like yeah, the computer computer rebooting and uh, the Windows logo coming up on the projection <laughs> screen behind you while you're playing, <laughs> things like that. You can laugh about <laughs> it now. Yeah. But exactly. in the moment, it fucking sucks. Exactly. It does. Yeah. So my my first gig was um, well, we started basically covering. Um, songs of hardcore bands we liked but that was without any gigs we were just in the re rehearsal room playing and then I played in a in a band in 97, 98 I must have been like 16, 17 um, called Clandestine mm -hmm. named after that Entombed record yeah. and um, and that was also like heavy, noisy, abrasive hardcore. We played a couple of shows with Catharsis, a band from the States that we we all worshipped at that time. And um, and Gehenna, if you remember that band. No, that one I don't remember. Sick, violent <laughs> as fuck. I remember the singer carving through the crowd with his head first and just Jesus like... Jesus yeah, death and destruction. <laughs> so yeah, those were my, my first shows. I love that. I think it's amazing. Um, something that happened recently, since the last time we had a conversation, you finally get back on the road. You finally get back over to the States. You're finally allowed to play. And Loic jumps into the crowd and breaks both his feet. Exactly what you just said right there about loving this singer jumping off stage with his head and carving his way throughout the crowd. Is there a moment when, as a band, you have to make a decision that maybe we're too old to do certain things on stage? I believe so. <laughs> I believe so. Um, I think this is probably why Dillinger quit in the best moment, and I have a lot of respect for that. 
um, rather than just aging and not being able to do the things anymore that you used to do and that were very essential for 100%. the band that you were on stage, yeah. it's better to quit doing that at one point or yeah. to maybe to quit the band altogether. So, yes, absolutely. Um, I do think, however, that there is also a kind of dignified way of growing up and changing what you do on stage and how absolutely. you perform and also ideally coinciding with the type of music that you're writing. So, um, I mean, we, we were never... Uh, in that situation really like I mean we, we're not Dillinger's Cape Plan obviously we, we, we do have a lot of uh, very energetic aspects of our performance Louis does go into the crowd a lot um, like at almost every show um, still to this day he and, still does and it it's, to this day he still does that wow it's a little bit different here on this tour because we're supporting and it's a bit of a different crowd absolutely but when we're headlining every night he's out there and the fact that he broke both of his legs didn't stop him like really? not at all he was actually there was never like a conversation afterwards like look dude we're finally back on the road and then no. this now no, no. he he loves to do that it's nothing that he does intentionally it's just like when, when there is that energy that that's what he does he, there's footage of him um, stage diving with uh, like broken legs yeah. and like the mold still yeah. on from Barcelona, <laughs> you know. And when, I, when I saw that yeah. from stage, yeah. I was like, dude, fuck, <laughs> don't <laughs> let me get my phone. But <laughs> yeah, exactly, but there's like him, and then there was Bill from Decrepit Birth, same situation. And then Bill had to drop off the tour, but you guys continued without a vocalist, I think, because you guys are so much melodic and progressive. I think you can sort of do it, but it must have been a weird tour. It was a very weird, not tour. having a vocalist. No, it was really hard for us. I mean, we the tour was amazing up until this point. Yeah. It was like crazy was shows every yeah. night yeah. and um, and really good vibes. And uh, all of a sudden, this happens, and it really kicked us out of the like the happy routine that we were in, yeah. like brutally, you know. And he had to. He still played two shows. Um, and getting him in and out of the bandwagon in a wheelchair. Exactly. I can only imagine yeah. the shit you guys had to yeah, do. Yeah, we did that for a few days. He still played two shows in a wheelchair. Unbelievable. And, um, and well, he had to get home to get surgery. Yeah. We actually went to a hospital in LA, and the quote was like one hundred thirty thousand dollars. No, thank you. No. <laughs> and uh, his Swiss health insurance eventually um, sent two nurses over to pick him up and take him home to Switzerland. Really? And uh, he Hell got yes. his surgery there, and we were alone all of a sudden. And uh, the first show, I remember, the first show alone was in Portland. It totally sucked. Yeah. We tried to come up with something that made sense, and it didn't. And um, I was very angry that night because we. Uh, we do release all of our records as parallel as instrumental versions so there's no reason why we shouldn't be doing that but it's something when you just mute the vocals it's not the same you need to rehearse for that you need to prepare a set list of like the more atmospheric tracks maybe that can work well instrumentally and we weren't prepared for that so we had to adapt to it and it took a couple of shows and then we found a way somehow and then surprisingly the second half of the tour was actually really good we I think we learned a lot from that because because of the fact that Luik was taken away from us, we learned to engage the crowd in different ways and to interact in different ways, like the, the rest of us, Matthias, David, Paul, and me. And that's something we still do and that we've taken out of this experience. So you've so, like leveled up because of the experience, which exactly, is amazing. Exactly, exactly. And we, we, like we used to just be in our private little capsula yeah. and uh, yeah. then we had to, you had we to be all had to be frontmen. Yeah. We all had to entertain that's what it is Fuck. in the end you know and like to just communicate <laughs> with the that first night must have sucked yeah because there's a routine on tour there's a routine yeah on stage exactly yeah and you're relying on your bandmates to do certain things yeah. everyone has you a know? job exactly everyone has a, a job and a role you know Fuck. and yeah. take out someone as important as the lead singer it leaves you in a in a difficult situation and it was like that but uh, yeah like I said we took like five six shows to adapt I think and then the Chicago show for example was one of the best shows of the tour I think for us we sold more merch that night than any other night and it was a show without Luik I don't tell him that <laughs> <laughs> no but of course like we we missed him dearly and the crowd missed him but I think everyone understood that it was um, a special situation and people generally appreciated that we didn't just abort the tour yeah which we a lot of bands would have a lot of bands might have and would have yeah yeah no we couldn't do that we had our flights booked and um, and <laughs> like the bandwagon we had to, was we had, reserved the bandwagon was reserved we had like that was not an option to just cancel the tour you had the merch printed <laughs> on to um, something that I think is I, like, I, I love the ocean I'm a huge fan but I think I'm more of a fan of you 
because of Pelagic Records. Because you have a roster of so many bands. And like, uh, setting up for the first interview that we did, I was looking at the roster and going, oh my God, I like this band. Oh my God, I like, I like this band. I like this band. I like this band. And it's all your roster. So just to name a few, like Herod, Mono, LLNN, Ancestors, Guys, and Astronaut, F, there's more. But I just I have to commend you. So so, why did you start a label? What was the importance of having a label for you? Um, let's start with that. Pelagic was started in 2009 because I wanted to repress an old Ocean record, Fluxion, yeah. and we were signed with Metal Blade at that point. And so I asked them if they want to do it, and they didn't want to do it at that time. And uh, Andreas from the German office told me, "Why don't you do it yourself?" And I was thinking, hmm, maybe I could do that. <laughs> and then uh, he hooked me up with a couple of distribution contacts. And I managed to uh, score a deal with SPV back then. Yeah, like a, German it was label. a German yeah. distributor that was serving all of Europe. That doesn't exist anymore, really. Okay. But uh, um, there was a good deal. And so I repressed that record and it went well. And then I did a second record by a small Swiss band called Nebra. That is a super awesome uh, album, but it... Is that because they were friends with you and they were like, well, you just did this, Robin, can you do this for us? I don't remember how I even discovered them. I think it was recommended to me by some friends in Switzerland okay. at that time. And I listened to that album and I thought it was awesome. I still think it is. Okay. And I wanted to release it because now I had a record label. And so I pressed like 1,500 CDs and I still have 1,400 in my oh. basement. <laughs> so massive success. First success. And then the second was not a success. Uh, it was a disaster. Okay. And then what? on top of that, um, SPV went into bankruptcy and I had my CDs, my two releases spread out all across Europe at the different national distributors and had to arrange for them to be shipped back to Berlin. And like disaster. It's, it sucked. It was difficult. Yeah. So you could have quit, though. There was a moment where you could have quit. Yes. Thank yeah. God you didn't. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was on the edge at that time. But then the third release I did was uh, God is an Astronaut. Uh, all is violent, all is bright, and that sold very well. And uh, was a great, great album. And with every release, I learned a lot, of course, also. And yeah, back then it was really just a one-man enterprise, me packing parcels in my basement, uh, taking care of all the pre-orders myself. And then it slowly and gradually grew. Um, the next Ocean records I did were the the Centric records on vinyl and um, and Precambrian on vinyl. And that's because Metal Blade didn't want to do it. Exactly. They didn't want to do vinyl for a while. There was there was a crisis that, that to be honest, I don't quite understand myself why they didn't want to do it back then. But they didn't. And they licensed it out to small labels. At one point, I just got the license back from those small labels and told them I'm, I want to do that myself. And then when we renewed our contract, I made it a condition from the beginning that we keep the vinyl rights. Because at that time, we had set that up uh, in a way that it, it worked very well. And... Uh, so the ocean and our vinyl releases massively boosted the label and uh, made it possible to try other things. And, uh, and that's what I did. And then it slowly and gradually grew up until like 2016. I only had one employee. And then in the, the years after that, 2017, 2018, and then throughout the pandemic, we've grown to a team of nine now. And especially during the pandemic, the label grew exponentially because um, people were sitting at home, um, not being able to go to gigs or festivals, not even being able to spend their money on drinks and going to bars. And they still loved music, and so they they wanted to buy vinyl records. And uh, we in increased our production by like 800% through oh the pandemic. God, it's amazing. crazy. Crazy. Amazing. And so now it's become a, a full-time job. And um, Paul, our drummer in the ocean, works for Pelagic. And we really? have a team of, uh, of uh, seven other people working at home, uh, from packing people to, like, PR persons. And uh, Shout out to Chris. Exactly. Chris is the PR guy. Uh, James <laughs> is the, the logistics guy. And, uh, yeah, and now um, also because we started this subscription um, a couple of years ago, which basically is a, a monthly flat rate that we let people pay in order to get everything we release on vinyl in a special limited color edition very cool that has been um, very 
very healthy also because it brings in funds at the beginning of the month. Yeah. And it also means that for every release uh, that we make, we already, or 300 copies are already sold to our subscribers. So it means we can realize higher print runs. We don't press anything, even of very small releases, less than 1,000 copies anymore, which uh, then makes it cheaper. You know, the third price. of them are gone right away. Exactly. Yeah. So that has really helped very us smart. be able to experiment and also not just uh, always have to keep a very close eye on whether a band is already has a lot of profile. There's actually a lot of bands that we released that didn't have much profile before we took them on. This year's Playgrounded is one such example. So for example, good. super good record. So like um, movie soundtrack S. Yeah. yeah. It's very heavy and very complex at the yeah. same time and also very calm. It's yeah. like uh, I really enjoyed it. Meshuggah yeah. and Codeine jamming or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Super good yeah. record. Yeah. So things like that that we knew would appeal to our crowd um, that would have been more difficult in the past. Now with this uh, base of monthly subscribers we can afford to do that and we know that a lot of records are already going away to these people within our own circles basically so that is uh that's very very good and lets us do things that otherwise we couldn't be do be doing you you mentioned that like you know that your crowd so so what what is a pelagic record crowd how do you know which bands to present them what is the sound that defines pelagic according to you it's somewhere between if you just want to take cheap terms between post-rock and post-metal but it is also a lot more than that we've done some quite crowdy releases last year like oslo tapes for example or a finnish band called horte um, but the essence of it is uh, heavy, experimental heavy music um, can be instrumental and can be on the pretty post-rock side of things and can be crushingly heavy like LLNN, for example. Um, so it's a quite wide range. And I do believe that our audience is somehow split. There's definitely the people that buy all of our post-rock records. They will buy Mono and PG Lost and uh, God is an Astronaut and they don't like the very heavy stuff. And there's also the the heavy crowd that uh, doesn't get so much out of the, the post-rock thing. But altogether, um, I mean, the, the fact that we have these subscribers kind of proves that there's enough people that like the whole scope of it, you know, and also the fact that there are maybe sometimes surprises um, that f fit within the general pelagic aesthetics, but they're also a little bit outside of the box, like I just said, Horto or Oslo Tapes, for example. But yeah, of course, people have preferences, you know, and uh, I, I can't really say um, what it is that uh, unites all these bands or the, the red thread that is going through. I, I, I do think that the Pelagic sound is best defined by its bands, you know, and the, uh, and the, the axis that goes from um, a band like Mono to a band like LLNN. Very yeah. disparate <laughs> ends of the spectrum, but both bands are heavy in their own way. You I know? would definitely and, um, love to see them collaborate. In some weird way, I, I, I think they would work. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that, yeah. <laughs> LLNN just did a collaboration with uh, De The Devil's Trade, okay. signed with Season of Mist. It's a Hungarian singer-songwriter. Really? With an amazing voice, and that uh, is a good example yeah. of that. And yeah. they, uh, they did a collab collaboration record, which they premiered at Roadburn this year. Amazing. And we're going to release it next year. I can't wait to hear that. That is a good example of something that sounds very odd, like a singer-songwriter with a folk context uh, meeting a super heavy, sludgy Danish metal band, but it, it works very, very well. I think it's so fucking cool. So fucking cool. Hey, what's up, Vox and Hobsons? I just want to take a little moment about Cryptopsy's upcoming tours. That's right, I'm talking about the Scream of Perseverance tour and our headliner dates that coincide with that tour called As Summer Burns. The Scream of Perseverance tour is kicking off at the end of May and runs all the way until the end of June. We are supporting the mighty death to all. We are going all over the United States and we are hitting some of Canada. So excited to be honoring the legendary music of death alongside amazing musicians that performed on these albums. Even more stoked to be doing some headliner dates in some cities that I've actually never played in. If you are planning to come to any of these shows, you should definitely grab your tickets by going to voxandhops.com slash summer, and you will be able to grab all of your tickets there. That's voxandhops.com slash summer. Do it, people. Come hang out with me. Enjoy life, metal, and craft beer in your hometown. 
Come to a show. We're going to have a great time. Now, enough about all of that. Let's get back to the episode. How do you feel if ever, like, you've built a band, you find this band, you love this band, you cater this band, it grows, it grows, and then it leaves the nest and it goes to a bigger label? How, how do you feel when babies leave the nest, if it's happened? It probably like uh, a mother whose child is turning 18 and leaving the house. <laughs> Are you proud of them Are you, or do you want them to stay? Both. Because if they're leaving, it's because on your side you can't give them what they want anymore. I have to think first if that even really ever happened. Um, I feel like last time you told me it didn't. I feel yeah, like Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of something, but... Um, I mean, Mono are a good example. We started working with them in 2014. We released four records. The contract expired and uh, we signed a new contract because they were happy with what we do. And for me, they're one of the most amazing and so inspirational good. bands ever. So, yeah. so working with them is a great honor and a great pleasure. And uh, I think this is how it has to be. You know, both sides have to be happy. But sometimes also other things come into play. And uh, I understand if Nuclear Blast come around and, uh, you know, propose to one of our bands and a deal that is hard to just say no to, you know, then I understand, of course, if, if a band wants to go that route. Although it probably means that they won't see nearly the same royalties from the, the deal as, as we're offering, but that's on a different page. <laughs> but if, if that happens, I look at it with common sense and um, we're not here to restrict anyone but obviously as a small record label you're investing a lot of time and money and energy into building an artist and uh, if then a bigger label comes around and just takes that artist and all the work you have put into it that would be wrong and that's exactly why we do we don't do one album deals um, I don't I don't know any indie label it's that would do that it's a building yes we want to build long-term relationships with our artists um, that doesn't mean like until the, the rest of their lives but it does mean that we don't do anything less than three album deals really okay, simply because we yeah because of what i just said like we, we put in a lot of effort time and money and uh we want to prevent that situation that then with the next record someone else comes and just uh, preys on what we've All the put work into you've this done, yeah. You know, yeah exactly ah. yeah um how do you feel what would be your advice or what would you say to someone that wants to start a label now is it still meaningful to have labels in this world with everything that's going on with the independent scene if you could fast forward to now with everything you've done would you still start pelagic Ooh, that's a tough question i'm honestly i'm not sure i do think there is still a, a need for um, independent record labels absolutely we do a lot of things that in theory the bands could do themselves but in practice it just won't work they don't do it the and they don't do it and even if they're very much like um, standing on their own feet and are, are very proactive um, we, we just have certain assets that have taken years to build like our distribution network um, I believe is one of the best independent distribution networks you can have in Europe on the physical side of the market and you don't just go to these distributors with a new label and say give me a deal they yeah. won't because they don't want to do accounting for a new label and I was struggling with this for years so what we have to offer now um, on the retail end is something that is the result of years of work and uh, that's why a label is handy for a small unknown bands because they can be sure that their vinyl records are out in stores in the right stores yeah. across the globe yeah. um, not just uh, we're, uh, the same that I just said for Europe is also true for North America I believe and um, so yes labels are very useful but that said um, there's a lot of things that bands can do themselves and it also depends a little bit on what type of music and what type of scene it is we are heavily focused on vinyl um, um, there are some bands that are very strong digitally, but they basically sell no physical records. So then it's a lot easier, obviously, to get access to that DSP um, uh, engine and just secure a digital distribution contract. And you can hire your own PR or do it yourself, you know, and uh, book shows yourself. It all depends also on how active you are and how much DIY ethics you have. We actually love to work with bands that have a lot of these DIY ethics. It's where, where I personally come from. <laughs> yes. And uh, the, like the, the most successful PR campaigns are the ones where the band actually provides like all of the content. Absolutely. And, 
Absolutely. It's quality content. Absolutely. And we make sure we get it out to the right audience and uh, invest into marketing to make it seen. But that doesn't replace the content. And we don't produce content for bands. You know, we don't make their videos um, for social media or their music videos. That's yeah. all in the yeah, end yeah, something yeah. that the bands have to do themselves. So I would suggest as for, a, for a band, focus your efforts on that and still get a label to help you with uh, reaching the right crowd. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Uh, more spicy question. You sort of mentioned it last time we had a chat. Um, I'm imagining this is what the future is bringing for the ocean. Uh, Long-standing relationship with Metal Blade Records. They're known for building many bands' careers. You have your own very amazing home where you've been re-releasing all the vinyls. At what point... Are you going to step away from Metal Blade and put the ocean just on Pelagic? Oh, that point lies in the past already. Amazing. We have a new record uh, finished and recorded that is going to be released through Pelagic alone, Amazing. worldwide. Uh, it was just mastered before we started with this tour. The artwork is done and Hell we're looking yes. at releasing in uh, May 2023. Fucking right. And there's a second record that I also wrote throughout the pandemic, but we haven't started recording it yet. So the next two Ocean records will be uh, released through Pelagic only. And this is just, a, at this point, a necessary step of emancipation. I really appreciate uh, the good relationship we've had with Metal Blade throughout the years. Um, we went through two and two, three or four album contracts with them, um, and they have really helped to build the band, especially in North America, but also in Europe. Um, and without them, we probably wouldn't be where we are right now. So I'm very thankful to them. But I also think that we are now in a position where we can do things at least as good, if not better, ourselves, uh, while keeping a much larger uh, share of the income um, than with them on board. And that's why we decided... Um, mutually decided to to part ways and uh, and to do it through Pelagic only. I think it's great news. Uh, Metal Blade are one of the best in the world, but yeah. it's your label and you've yes. built it to this. Why not just have it in your house? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly where we are it's, right now. It's, yeah. But you had to go through all the contracts to get there, so yeah. <laughs> cheers to you for doing that. Yes. Putting all the effort in, the years and years of hustling, uh, the, the tumultuous beginnings of Pelagic with with failures things collapsing to a massive success and now you have your band on your own label it's fucking awesome yeah yeah i'm very thankful and very happy that things uh, took these turns but it yeah like i said it's the end result of years of touring the band has been around for 20 years 22 years Amazing. almost and uh, we've released 10 or 11 records so it's been a long way and now we've come to this point and we're all very excited about that so cool I love collabs I forgot to bring you my brand new beer collab I'll be honest uh, I had to leave early to go to work before coming here with you today. If not, I would have brought you my brand new beer collab. Um, but I love making collabs. I love making things with Vox and Hops logo on. I make, love making things with Cryptopsy's logo. If you could make a collab for yourself, for the ocean, what would that be? It doesn't have to be a beer. Uh, what would be the perfect the ocean collab? Well, we already have something like that. I'm not sure I told you about this the last time already, but we've made our own coffee. Yes. Um, we actually, it's also a, a pandemic-born uh, project Basically, we started making band coffees in, uh, through Pelagic, where me and my good old friend Angelo, a coffee roaster, were sitting down listening to music and trying to describe that music with words. Awesome. And then realizing that a lot of times the same words that you use to describe music, you can also use to describe coffee. Yeah. And so we came up with the idea to make coffee that reflects a band's sound, basically. And we made so a coffee cool. for uh, for the ocean, for Mono, for Goddess and Astronaut, and for Envy yes. from Japan. And um, yeah, the, the ocean coffee is a, is a, is a stormy wake-up call in the morning. It's very Robusta-based, very, very heavy. Um, and uh, the Mono coffee is uh, very elegant and elegiac and has this long, lingering taste on the palate. So like it's so a... Cool. They're very different, <laughs> as different as coffee can be, basically. So cool. And so this was the, uh, yeah, this was the project we did in this direction. I, I wouldn't be opposed to uh, doing an ocean 
wine either. I believe we're more wine drinkers than beer drinkers, especially Peter is a huge uh, red wine cognoscenti, and I think an ocean wine would be something really nice. And there's actually an Italian winemaker that made one already. Um, he asked us for permission to use uh, a song title so for cool. his wine, Eocene, it's called. And he sent us a couple of bottles. And it's, it's good, but it's not exactly what I would like. Um, so I think there's more... There's more that can be done in this direction, and if we release an ocean wine, we really want to want to stand 100% behind it, like we do with the coffee. And we haven't found the right partner for this yet, so I think this would be the next project, probably. Very, very cool. Coffee is easier to ship, exactly, and much more legal to ship than wine, though. Yes. Uh, one last question: Classic Vox and Hops, a wrap-up question. Uh, it probably doesn't happen to you very often because you just told me before that the last time you puked was on your 14th birthday but every once in a while it happens to everyone what is your hangover cure mm. drinking lots of water before you go to bed that's the point like um i go to party a lot in berlin and um okay let's not talk too much about that but it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's important to find uh, the right point when you stop drinking or taking drugs or whatever it is that you're doing And then to um, just drink water for about an hour, an hour and a half before you go to bed. And you'll feel amazing the next day. It really Ooh. makes a huge difference. So when I go to parties, I stop drinking and doing anything for at least an hour. I'm still out and uh, You're still just out drinking like two liters of water. With people. Exactly. Interacting. Because by that time, I will be, at that point, I will be drunk anyways. So there's no need to drink more. And then to just rinse your body with two liters of water, that really helps. Amazing. Yeah. Robin, thank you so, so much for hanging with me talking about your life talking about music talking about craft beer i had a blast everyone get ready for that brand new the ocean collective record that's coming out in may of 2023 i'm stoked for it uh go subscribe to that the pelagic subscription thing because it's it's fucking awesome robin massive cheers to you this is amazing hail the borealis with really nice beer cheers cheers Hey, thank you all so, so much for listening right to the annual that I love and appreciate that. Man, this was an awesome conversation. I am completely enamored <laughs> with Pelagic Records. I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I really, really like that label. And to uh, sit down and have a chat with Robin and uh, get into the mindset of someone that curates a label that I love so much was a treat. Yeah, I hope you understand that. We uh, had a great chat. Uh, it was awesome to connect with him face to face. Uh, we had had a call before. Sadly, that episode never came to life, but It gave us a chance to have a chat again face-to-face, -face, and it was amazing. So stoked. Massive cheers to Robin, and I cannot wait to hear what that brand new The Ocean album that Robin was talking about. It's going to be massive. Massive cheers to Robin. Thank you for taking the time to hang out with me. Now, if you enjoyed this Vox & Hops episode, you should sign up to the Vox & Hops Metal Podcast's mailing list. You can do it on my website, voxandhops.com. That's V-O-X-A-N-D-H-O-P-S.com. When you do that, you shall receive one email a month that will contain all of the details of everything that is happened in the world of the Vox and Hops Metal podcast. You'll get to see which episodes I dropped recently. You will get to see which episodes I have coming up. You will get to see which albums the Vox and Hops album review crew have reviewed recently. You will also get to see which albums Jerry Monk, Vox and Hops' Metal Architect, has added to the Brutal Awakenings playlist. And you will also get to hear about any projects I have in the works before I announce them to the public. There is always a lot of things going on in the world of Vox and Hops, and I hate when you miss anything, so please do me a favor and sign up to the mailing list. The Vox and Hospital podcast is brought to you by Sound Tally Media and Evergreen Podcasts. I hope you have a killer rest of the week. I will be back next week with two episodes, one on Tuesday and another on Friday. But until then, remember to enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. Cheers, Vox and Hops heads. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com, and I'll see you there.